0: Eric Smith is the Associate Professor of Rhetoric at York College of Pennsylvania. He is also the co-founder and co-editor of Free Black Thought. In a Newsweek article, Professor Smith wrote, "...we hear endlessly about systematic racism, white supremacy, the black-white income gap, and police brutality," unquote. So powerful an ideology has this narrative become, he says. That those of us who pose a counter-narrative, that's black anti-woke writers, for example, frequently find our words being misconstrued in an effort to stanch their impact, unquote. Here's Professor Smith. Professor Eric Smith of York College, what's a professor of rhetoric?
1: A professor of rhetoric is somebody who teaches persuasion, basically, and everything therein. are uh, Audience consideration, um, context, uh, the values and beliefs uh, of an audience or an environment, taking all those things into consideration uh, when speaking or writing. Uh, there are various definitions of rhetoric, but I still go by the classic Aristotelian one, which is uh, the ability to, in any given situation, discern the available means of persuasion, you know, which is to say that whether you're in this context or this context, you know how to speak your mind and persuade and inform.
0: When did you start wanting to be a professor of rhetoric?
1: I actually went to graduate school to be a professor of American literature, uh, focusing mostly on 19th century nonfiction. Uh, You know, Emerson, for example uh, Frederick Douglass uh, um, Things like that Even William James, uh, to a degree That didn't um, last long Because I discovered rhetoric in graduate school Um, I realized that You know, oh, this thing about persuasion And discourse And how certain ideologies affect how certain people speak I've been interested in this the whole time I just didn't realize it existed uh, so I got my M.A. in American Lit, but switched to my Ph.D. in in rhetoric.
0: Where'd you grow up?
1: I grew up in Mount Holly, New Jersey. Uh, technically East Hampton, but we share a zip code, and there was nothing in East Hampton at the time but uh, a few houses and some cows. So I always say uh, Mount Holly. Um, I went to Rancocas Valley Regional High School in Mount Holly. And, uh, yeah, it's South Jersey, not North Jersey. Those are two very different states.
0: Explain that.
1: Um, well, South Jersey is why they call it the Garden State. Uh, North Jersey very much is not. Now, I'm not going to say that you know North Jersey is an ugly place. I'm I'm not saying that at all. But I'll put it this way: they're Giants and Jets fans. I'm an Eagles fan. <laughs> you know.
0: What well, What are What was your family like?
1: Ah, uh, my family was wonderful. Um, it was a very lively group of people that the, the house was a great place to come to and a sad place to leave all right so I, I i really enjoyed and to this day still enjoy uh my family it was a good environment
0: how many kids in the family would your parents do
1: um there were five kids there are five kids in the family i'm second to last um my mother is uh was a unit coordinator at deborah heart and lung center and um, my father was a Vietnam vet turned postal worker, and um, we were raised middle, lower slash middle uh, class. And uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, I had a you know they gave us a lot of opportunities they didn't have, you know. And to this day, I appreciate that, and it's part of some of the stuff that I, I write. It's part of what motivates me.
0: What were your interests in high school?
1: Um, My interest in high school. Wow. I wanted to, I wanted to write. I I liked writing. Uh, It was an escape for me. Um, It was something that I thought I was good at and that I would continue to do in my future. I had no idea what the word rhetoric meant at the time uh, or anything like that. And I didn't really think I'd be an educator, but I knew I wanted to write.
0: Where'd you go to college? First Step.
1: Ursinus College, a small liberal arts college, uh, about 40 minutes north and slightly west of Philadelphia.
0: Why did you pick that?
1: There was a um, college day uh, at my high school. The cafeteria was filled with all these uh, booze, kiosks, if you will. And um, I saw the Ursinus one and made a beeline. I just something about it. And I know that is not, you know an answer becoming of a professor uh, that I intuitively found my college, but that is what happened. I, I, I looked at it. I felt good um, from the people talking. Um, My one of the assistant coaches on the football team happened to go there. So that nudged me a little bit as well. Uh, So yeah, that's, that's why I chose it.
0: Did you play sports in either high school or college?
1: Uh, Yes. I played um, football. I ran track. I did basketball a little bit. In, uh, in high school. Um, and in college, I did football.
0: So after, what you what was your major at Ursinus? English. Where'd you get your master's?
1: University of Illinois, Chicago.
0: Why did you go there?
1: Um, well, I wanted to get out of uh, the Philadelphia, New Jersey area, for one thing. Um, Chicago is a place I always wanted to uh, uh, visit and check out. Um, I was excited to be in a big city by myself, uh, that that's daunting to a lot of people. It wasn't to me. Um it was adventurous. And um a professor uh, at Earth Science, my undergrad at the time, uh thought I'd like it. You know, and there was a professor there who she knew and you know, you know how things happen. And uh, and I, I I went there, I liked it, um, and I applied and I got in.
0: And what was your focus when for your master's degree?
1: Uh, American Lit yeah. Do you have I, a, um
0: if you have a favorite writer or two?
1: I, I uh yes. Uh Emerson and Douglas. Ralph Waldo, Emerson and Frederick Douglass were my favorites. Um, but um, you know, you gotta with a master's degree you gotta expand a little bit farther than that. Uh, but those were the ones. In fact, um Emerson's self reliance was a big motivator when I was in college as my undergrad. Um I I it resonated with me. And um you know, it led me to read more of his stuff and it all resonated with me.
0: What was it? Give me some ideas you got from Emerson that, uh, about self reliance.
1: Uh, well, he has a wonderful essay titled Self Reliance. And, and what he does, and he, he goes through life saying, here's why we shouldn't have to depend on others too much. Right. We shouldn't, you know, uh, read these authors and abide by them just because they have particular ethos. Right. We have knowledge ourselves. We should live life. You know, get out of the library and go out and live life. In fact, in the American Scholar um, uh, essay, he says just that, um, which uh, Harvard didn't like at the time. He was, gave me a talk at Harvard about how, you know, college was overrated. Um, he wasn't invited back. So um, I I liked his um, grit, I liked his uh, moxie, and I liked what he was saying about self-reliance. And I I think it's something that, unfortunately, is starting to wane in society today.
0: Why Frederick Douglass?
1: Uh, Amazing story. Uh, An escaped slave who became one of the, the most famous speaker uh, of the 19th century. Um, I could put arguably in front of that but uh, no, I mean if you look at uh, the speaking engagements he had, the the newspaper articles um, he was a a demand right, Um, people wanted to hear how this black slave escaped and became so eloquent and well, he did it because of self-reliance hard work, knowing what he wanted to do and going for it, being pragmatic in nature right? And, and he admired Emerson for that
0: so, how did you immerse yourself in both authors?
1: how um, well well you just read them for one thing you you dig de- deep into uh, what they were talking about not just uh, you know um, their their uh, publications but the history uh, behind their lives and things like that um, what's more, they were inspirations. They weren't just writers you know who wrote interesting things they were inspirations for how to you know go out into this world and succeed right um if frederick Douglass can escape slavery and become the person he was there's no excuse for me not achieving my goals you know um what's more self-reliance is my favorite one of my favorite attributes along with individuality um two things that emerson embodied so uh so yeah
0: but as you know right over here in anacostia is the frederick Douglass house Mm -hmm. and then with emerson it's up there in concord massachusetts Mm -hmm. right up there on authors road did you ever go to either place and they came from vastly different origins i haven't
1: i haven't gone again uh, i found rhetoric and said i'll do that stuff later you know so yeah
0: after master's where did you get your phd
1: I stuck around. I, I stayed at University of Illinois Chicago.
0: And your dissertation was about what?
1: Um, my dissertation was called A Rhetoric of Mythic Proportions. It talked about um, how Dionysus and Hermes uh, represented uh, certain kinds of uh, rhetorical theory and practice. And it also talked about, it mostly Hermes uh, and other trickster figures, Loki, Esu, um, uh, you know, their there's a trickster figure in every culture if you go back far enough. And they all represent language, communication, and, and the um, nebulous nature of language, how one term can mean so many different things uh, to other people. Uh, language manipulation, uh, persuasion, right? So these were literally gods of rhetoric. So I wanted to uh, dive into that, and that's my, that was my dissertation.
0: How long have you been at York College, and what's it like? Um, it's been 10 years.
1: Uh exactly. This is the best place I've ever worked um regarding, you know, the faculty, uh, uh the staff, the my my peers here. I I look forward to uh, meetings with them. Uh it's 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 a great place. I I'm, I'm happy to be here.
0: Gonna switch now to a headline that was actually in one of the newspapers this morning. Harvard is named Worst School for Free Speech, scoring zero out of a possible 100. Are you aware of this?
1: No, I am not. What what paper is that?
0: Well, it was published by the Foundation for Individual Rights and Expression. Oh, okay. And, uh, you know, they say um, they released its annual college free speech rankings today, which dubbed the state of free speech at the Ivy League school abysmal. When you hear that, you know, I'm sure you know Harvard and all that compared to what you're getting uh, at at your college. Does that surprise you? It doesn't
1: surprise me, Um, unfortunately. uh, A lot of the Ivies are having uh, issues with free speech these days. What's more, um, if if fire is presenting it, there's there's some sense to it, I believe. I think they do good work. Um, So. I don't know exactly the ins and outs of what's going on at Harvard, so I can't really speak to it in depth. But I do know that, you know, uh, professors have been punished for saying certain things that people didn't like.
0: Anybody ever punished at York College for that? Uh, not that I know of. But you did say somewhere that you were criticized by your dean um, at, um, at one point? Uh,
1: uh, yes, yes. But that. Uh, that's that happened a few years ago um, I don't think it's a a, a matter worth talking about um, the the true ostracization uh, came from my field at large and and um, the leaders in the field of uh, rhetorical studies uh, that's where the vitriol is really coming from
0: so why did you found or co find free black thought and what is it Um
1: Free Black Thought is a nonprofit focused on um, displaying viewpoint diversity within Black America. There's this idea that Black people, you know, think alike, they, uh, they agree on certain interpretations, they agree on certain goals, things like that. Uh, they share the same exact values, attitudes, and beliefs. And that is not true. Um, so Free Black Thought is out there to dispel that myth and provide a voice for uh, black writers and poets and artists who aren't represented in mainstream media. Um, There's a journal of free black thought. There's a compendium, uh, a robust bibliography of uh, voices you may not know of. Um, And uh, there's a new podcast uh, that's been about two months old now. And uh, it's going well.
0: Why did you start it? How did you start it?
1: Um, Well, why I started it? I started it because of a there was an incident in 2019 at a conference. Um, I listened to a talk that I thought was a bit off. uh, To put it lightly, Um, the speaker was basically saying it was inherently racist to expect standardized English from black students. Um, And I uh, went on a now defunct listserv. And Asked, is this really the best advice for professors and best representation for uh, minority students? You know, um, it was a long email. And uh, the response to that was not very good. Uh, The response to that was that basically I wasn't a um, real authentic black person. And I I had a colonized mind. And I wasn't as enlightened as everybody else about uh race relations in america and things like that and it got pretty vicious uh spilled over to social media um and that motivated me uh to focus on the rhetorics of anti-racism and and um to fight race essentialism um and and to co-found free black thought Um, it it wasn't my idea i i found people they found me and told me what they were doing and I said you know what yeah let, let me uh, be a part of this and see how it how it goes and uh, so far so good.
0: Are you uh, criticized by your colleagues there at York College or others for doing something like this?
1: Um, not to my face. Um, I, I I know for a fact that there are certain uh, people out there who, who don't agree with me um, and you know uh it, it's interesting when white people tell me I am not being black correctly um that's uh always fun but uh for the most part i am I am pretty comfortable here
0: what what what's your experience in white people telling you here not you don't have the right excuse the expression of rhetoric
1: mm-hmm. um well um I've been accused of white supremacy. Um, because I value things like self-reliance, individualism. Um, I value uh, learning as many dialects as you can, especially the one that's most prominent in civic and professional spaces. Um, Because of that, I am mired in quote unquote, white ways of knowing and therefore a danger to the black community. And when white people tell me that, it's really, really disquieting um, and, and infuriating, if I'm to be honest.
0: Uh, what do you say back to them, and do you say anything back to them to their face?
1: um well, it hasn't really happened to my face. It's happened on social media um i don't i don't I'm not entirely sure it would happen to my face uh anytime soon um but i I remind people of the hypocrisy coming from um a lot of contemporary anti racist uh scholars uh activists, what have you. Um, they insist that we should believe black voices, but not mine, right? Uh, they insist that we should embrace the lived experiences of black people, but not mine. Um, and so I point out that hypocrisy, and they typically have nothing to say.
0: You, I've seen a lot of your work, and, and I'm just going to throw uh, phrases at you and have you de- define them and why you, why you want to comment on them. One of them is systemic racism. What is systemic racism from your point of view?
1: Systemic racism is the idea that um, racism is, they, they say baked in to um, American society and American institutions. Um, and the idea is that these institutions are built with the oppression of minorities in mind right so uh certain policies are made so that white people um uh, maintain superiority right and every disparity uh in in uh race relations is because of this systemic racism right every problem is because of this systemic racism and nothing else right um and and that, that's the idea
0: how often do you see that actually happening or do you um
1: i don't typically see it actually happening but that's the nature of it if you ask people who believe in it it's supposed to be hidden it's insidious it's it's it's, it's something that you have to you know look for and if you don't see it then you are suffering from false consciousness you have a quote-unquote colonized mind um and the people who are not mired in and that kind of uh colonial Mindset are the ones who really see it and should be the leaders. That's the
0: idea. What were your parents' attitudes about this, and and what's their reaction to your success?
1: My parents, uh, we didn't really talk about uh, politics, race relations, social political issues, uh, what have you. Um, It was really a fun place to be. Uh, I, I we we didn't have those kind of conversations at the dinner table. Um they they didn't come up. Um these are things that I would uh discover as I went into college, and went into graduate school and then into the academy. Uh so I didn't grow up um with, with this as a normal part of my household.
0: What about your siblings?
1: Uh neither did they.
0: What, any feedback from them now that you're doing what you're doing?
1: Um no. Um not not nothing negative. You know, um they they know I, I have my reasons. I suppose, Uh, but again, it's 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 something that I do, and you know, it's talked about for a little bit, and then we move on. You know, it's not really a big deal uh, in my household. Um, Thanksgiving is about Thanksgiving, not about you know uh, uh, these these issues. Christmas is the same. You know, uh, it's it's not a it's not a big topic of conversation among us.
0: Another phrase on the list and we hear this a lot is white supremacy what does that mean to you
1: Um, white supremacy is the act of maintaining supremacy by people of uh, European ancestry Um, it is aligned with enlightenment values uh, like self-reliance individualism uh, primacy of reason um, equality before the law Um, all these things are derived from people who derive from Europe uh, a.k.a. white people, and therefore, because of that connection, um, they are already considered inherently racist. Um, people go as far as to say that these things are actually worsening racism because they help hide it.
0: So do you think there is such a thing as white supremacy? Uh, no. Why not? So many people do.
1: Um I think that's interesting. I think a lot of people, um, especially people of um, African American or, or Latino minority, um, uh, scholars, students, what have you, uh, the the ones that are most adamant about white supremacy uh, are the ones that tend to have the least interaction with white people. Um, they tend to be people who um, grew up in predominantly black or predominantly Latino. Uh, areas and didn't really um, meet and interact with white people until later on in their lives Um, I grew up uh, in a predominantly white uh, area and um, went to a very diverse school uh, with many white people as black people and and, you know it was uh, I liked it I was proud of it for that right Um, so I have this different relationship than they do so they're there's a lot of speculation going on, a lot of fear based on things they've heard and not experienced. And I've been experiencing this since kindergarten. So um, actually knowing the terrain makes you less fearful of the terrain. And I, I think that's what's going on. I, I, at a young age, I realized that white supremacy wasn't really, you know, legitimate. You know, I'd be sitting in class and I look to my left and the white kid to my left is eating paste. And I say, "Okay, he's superior to me. (laughs) This this is this is clearly a myth.
0: That must have really happened.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Um, A lot of things happen to to make me realize that white supremacy isn't, you know, um, the, the, the boogeyman, the specter that a lot of people say it is.
0: Have you ever been treated differently, in your opinion, by white people?
1: Um, Because, yeah,
0: definitely. And how do you see it?
1: Uh, Well, it depends on the context. Uh, Sometimes people treat me, you know, um, especially uh, kindly uh, because they think they feel like they need to or or they're cruel because they um, have ideas about my competence or or uh, my my. you know intelligence or, or something like that I, i've had it from both sides
0: how big a problem is this whole subject of race in the united states right now
1: um it's it's bigger than it has been in a while um because it is uh at the forefront of it seems to be at the forefront of everything we're doing um especially uh, from an institutional standpoint a lot of places are you know, um, doing DEI trainings and things like that, implicit bias trainings, uh, especially after uh, George Floyd, but even before that, um, with Trayvon Martin and, and, and other unfortunate situations being seen, uh, being heard, and the reactions uh, to those things, uh, it is definitely at the forefront of uh, the American psyche right now. And... You know, I I understand that. I'm not saying that it shouldn't be that way, but I'm not a big fan of how it's being addressed typically.
0: What was your reaction when George Floyd was killed? Oh, it was an
1: anger, you know, um, that this person was killed unnecessarily, you know, and, and we have footage to see that he was killed unnecessarily. Um, and, you know, it. The fact that it was a white cop and, and a, a, a black uh, person obviously exacerbated uh, a lot of emotions across the nation, across the world, actually. You know, so um, I was in line with that. I, I was very angry about it. Um, but, you know, it's, it's it's interesting that we can agree on a problem but disagree on the solutions. Right. And, and that's, that's uh, the main source of contention in my life right now
0: you you mentioned uh well you didn't mention that you've written about black lives matter what do you think of that whole concept
1: um I love the term <laughs> you know i I like to think I matter um but uh, the organization uh, has some flaws as uh as most people are starting to realize um, forget about the um the financial issues uh they're in they were coming from a particular ideology that I think um is not conducive to improving race relations, um, and that ideology is based in, in Marxist thought, uh, often called uh, critical theory right, or critical social theory, and it it basically takes Marx and instead of proletariat bourgeoisie, it's minority white people, and they project that onto society and. And move from there. So everything's based on on that idea, and I I think that is uh, profoundly flawed. Excuse me. Go
0: go back again to to your upbringing and your schooling and all that. What other reasons do you think you don't think like, I don't even know if it's the majority of black people, but you don't think like a lot of the intellectuals that we hear in our society?
1: Um, Well, um, we I don't think like a lot of intellectuals that are heard, you're right uh, about that, uh, which is why, I, you know, I co-founded Free Black Thought um, to kind of combat that and give a voice to those other um, uh, black scholars or black people in, in general. Um, a lot of people, a lot of black people feel like me. Um, they don't speak up because it doesn't seem to be in their best interest. Excuse me. It doesn't seem to be in their best interest. Um, you know, they, they like their jobs. Uh, they like being a part of a, you know, community, whatever it, it is. And they don't want to rock the boat. But they understand the flaws and the logic of um, organizations like BLM.
0: DEI, you mentioned. Mm-hmm. Diversity, equity, and inclusion. Yes. Where did that come from, and is it working?
1: Well, the terms you know uh, came from the civil rights movement um, in, in the '60s, and those terms: diversity, you know, um, you know, various cultures um, working together, right? Um, equity, um, having giving the same opportunities to people, right? Having them open to people anyway, not um, making a concerted effort to block them from those opportunities, and inclusion, making sure people feel well included like this is their home too, right? Those uh, ideas are derived from uh, the the civil rights era. However, the definitions we have now are derived from a critical social justice um, mindset. And those terms have changed. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't know that they've changed. So when they see a black person against DEI, you know, they're... They're confused, right? Um, and they don't really understand what's happening here, and they think I'm some kind of uh, despicable person. But the case uh, really is that these terms don't mean what they used to mean. Uh, diversity means, you know, um, diversity of, you know, bodies, but not viewpoint, right? And and it typically means pushing uh, the white aside because they've had they've had their time, right? And now we're going to focus on minorities. Equity means equality of oppor- of outcome rather than equality of opportunity. So instead of uh, opening the door for everybody to go and and, and get these um, resources, they're just saying, you know what, we're just going to make sure that you all have these same outcomes. And inclusion is basically tantamount to censorship. You know, you can't say anything that will offend. Uh, a uh, a minority of some sort they're called microaggressions, you know so um if you ask somebody where uh he or she is from, that is considered inherently racist, uh whether consciously or unconsciously. Uh, so these things are not quite what they used to be, and it that makes all the difference because that turns into the redefinition of other terms um like uh racism for example, um, that can only be a white person discriminating against a black person, regardless of the white person's socioeconomic status or the black person's socioeconomic status or the white person's ethos or the black person's ethos, just period. You know, um, you know this racism can only be done by white people. If I am um, discriminatory against people because of their white skin, that's just discrimination. That's just prejudice, right? Racism is something different. Most Americans don't know that. Yet they're, the DEI officials in their uh, workplace, in their school, or something like that, are abiding by those those definitions, which is why part of the reason why they're getting away with it.
0: You said something I want to follow up on, because uh, as a white guy that's been asking people where they're from for the last 60 years in interviews, is that... A tip-off to people that I'm a racist?
1: To some people, yeah. Why? Yes, it is. Um, Because there is this idea that you're asking for racist reasons. Now, let me start with some of the tenets of critical social justice, um, which is an ideology that underlies uh, much of the the contemporary anti-racist act activism and and, and and teaching critical social justice has uh the primary tenet that you know don't ask whether racism happened ask how it manifested in this situation which is to say it's always going on if you think that might have been racist it, it was racist right and anybody who tries to explain himself is just being defensive and trying to maintain white supremacy or if i try to explain myself it's because i've been duped you know, and I have a, my mind's been colonized by, by white people, right? Um, so that's the idea. So when you ask a question, like, where are you from? The interpretation is, oh, you don't think I should be American? You know, you think I'm from someplace else? Now, that does get annoying. You know, um, <laughs> if, if you're Asian and you're from you from Brooklyn and you've been there for 100 years, somebody said, hey, where are you from? Um, and, you know, that's that's kind of annoying. yes. And, and you can say, you can address it then by saying, I've, you know, I and other people of my race have been here for quite some time, by the way. Um, it, it doesn't have to become a quote unquote microaggression. What's more, microaggressions also imply that people of a certain race all think the same. That's the race essentialism that free black thought is trying to combat. Um, so to say that um, asking where you're from is a microaggression implies that all black people think it's a a microaggression. So don't say it. I don't. So I I won't react um, negatively uh, to that statement. Maybe somebody will, sure. That doesn't mean that I will as well, because we share a skin color. right? So there's that race essentialism
0: again. So there's a little bit off the topic we're talking about, but what's your reaction when you watch the media treatment of Clarence Thomas?
1: Uh, Well, I think um, when Clarence Thomas comes up, uh, it kind of gives a lot of people, including white people, a pass to uh, say very racist things. Because, oh, well, it's Clarence Thomas. Black people hate him too. Um, but again, that's race essentialism. Uh, not all black people hate him. I don't hate the man. I don't agree with everything he does, for sure. I mean, that's for sure. Um, but that has nothing to do with his race. When When another, when a white judge does something um we talk about that person's personality thought process when clarence thomas does something we talk about his race and i don't know why we can't just talk about what he said and not who he is that is an inherently ad hominem fallacy being perpetrated by people who should know better including people in rhetorical studies
0: why do they do that then what's what's their motivation
1: um well it's their motivation is the narrative that derives from critical social justice which is you know the the world is stacked against us all right um you know uh, white supremacy is the main point of everything right uh so if this uh black person does something we can say well this this is not a real black person look america this is not a real black person we're real black people Um, A real black person wouldn't say this. He wouldn't make these decisions. He wouldn't have uh, these ideas. Um, And and if he does say certain things that we don't like, it's probably because he's trying to please white people. So it it goes into the whole uh, um, uh, victim-oppressed or victim-oppressor kind of uh, narrative.
0: There's another professor uh in this country, that's recently had a tremendous amount of success. I'm sure you know who Ibram X Kendi is. Yes. At Boston, mm-hmm. I I haven't seen the uh, the latest numbers, but he sold, I think, at least two million copies of uh, How to Be an Anti-Racist. Mm-hmm. Give Give us some, you know, tell us what that's all about, and why did he sell so many copies right after the George George Floyd uh, murder. Well, um,
1: the George Floyd murder was a kairotic moment uh, for such books. Uh, this do- goes for Robert D'Angelo's work as well. What I mean by chirotic is it was the perfect window of opportunity. Um, the, the time, the, the subject matter, um, the exigencies of police brutality, all those things aligned in a way um, that you know uh, made people look at books like Kendi's as this you know a a solution or a guide to finding a solution um the book is mostly well it's it's substantially memoir um and it's uh substantially just a kind of riffing on on what we need to do as a country to move forward productively and anti-racially uh or racist i don't even know how to (laughs) um render that term um but um in an anti-racist manner right um so unfortunately there's not a lot of you know uh solid research and reasoning going on there um it's very pardon the pun black and white thinking um either this or that there's no nuance uh going on there so uh kendy's main thesis um part of his main thesis is that every every problem, every disparity uh, that Black people have is because of some racist policy, right? Um, which isn't the case if you pay attention. You know there are other factors going on, and it really depends on the particular Black person or Black family, uh, Black neighborhood, uh, what have you. But but uh, that's simply it, it's not that straightforward. There's a lot going into this. Um, but he says that if you don't abide by this, you're basically saying those dis- disparities are because black people are inferior. And um, so he has to because that's such a bad conclusion. We have to go with this um, when it's not that cut and dry.
0: I've seen some mention of this, not necessarily from you, but the difference between an anti-racist and a non-racist.
1: Yes. And a non-racist is somebody who isn't being Racist, but he or she is letting racism happen around. They're not really doing anything to get rid of it systemically. An anti-racist is somebody who you know tries to get rid of it systemically uh, through policies and things like that. They're actually pushing back. There's no neutrality in the situation, right? Um, and, and and I'm not I'm not 100 angry at Kendi for that kind of statement. It aligns with the uh, concept that silence is consent right if something wrong is happening and you stay silent you're basically saying it's okay um so it's it's extended from that kind of mindset so i i'm not 100% angry with him uh about that um but the the the, the nature of anti-racism uh and the idea that because there is a disparity or because there is a problem in a black community it has to be uh because of some kind of racist uh systemically racist situation uh, i think that's short-sighted
0: he, his book's called how to be an anti-racist your book is called a critique of anti-racism in rhetoric and composition yes when you put your book out did the media pay any attention to it
1: um it didn't seem like that didn't seem like that, right now
0: why not I don't what's think... the difference between I, those two I, books? I,
1: oh uh oh what's the difference between the two books one is um more aligned, I don't know if McKinney um, would embrace critical social justice as his uh, go-to ideology, but it's more aligned with the oppressor, oppressed kind of situation. Um, my book uh, basically says that what's going on in my field um, in the name of empowering students is actually disempowering them. It's uh, incentivizing um, negative emotionality. Um, a negative outlook. It's incentivizing critical social justice as the lens through which we see the world. And that's not, um, to me, an accurate way of looking at the world. And that's what I write about.
0: Your students ever confront you uh, in the classroom having opposite views from yours?
1: Um, No. No. I mean, they may bring something up, but there's
0: no... I mean,
1: there's no contention behind it.
0: Do you get any sense of what professors across the higher education business are teaching when it comes to racism in most schools?
1: I'm not in every classroom, uh, so I, I, I don't really know. Um, as far as uh, my field is concerned, the, the voices, the loudest voices are, are speaking about uh, a kind of um, critical social justice pedagogy um, based in the transformation of society. Uh, so you know, you don't just have a writing class, you have a writing for social justice class. You're not calling it that, but that's what it is, right? Um, there are professors who will voice that their their main goal in teaching is to transform society, uh, even if they have to use their students to do so. Um, and, and there's an inherent contradiction that they understand and embrace, um, that if you're educating students, you're educating them for happiness and success and fulfillment in this society, right? But if you're trying to transform the society, that goes against uh, the mission of education. Uh, so they they basically say things like, uh, if I if I uh, let this student learn or, or uh, appreciate or think that standard English is the way uh, he needs to go in a certain situation, uh, then what I'm doing is perpetuating the status quo, right? And, and therefore you know I, I need to combat that right um so those are the issues i see in my field anyway and from what i hear um is going on in other fields as well
0: what do you say basically about the way the national media treats this issue are we getting a balance
1: no we're not getting a balance, especially from the fact that um everybody who's considered against this contemporary social justice form of a uh, anti-racism is a right-wing conservative uh you know of european descent and that is far from the truth there are many people on the left of various colors who are also upset about this um some of them are voicing it most of them are not because they want to maintain their jobs they don't want to be ostracized. um but that's uh if you if you listen to the media is you know every black person's for it every white person's against it and that is not the case
0: Where does this come from?
1: That's a good question. Um, You know, it's I I can keep saying it comes from, uh, you know, critical social justice, uh, uh, ideology and things like that. But it also it also comes from uh, policies that were meant to, you you know, um, level the playing field. Um, And the problem is people interpret these policies differently. Let's let's talk about diversifying a workplace. Um, Okay, so how do you do that? Well, you just make sure that um, the black people are not discriminated against because they're black and have um, access to resources that everybody else has, right? But that can be interpreted as, let's do a quota system, right? Um, And let's do that quota system. Let's find people, um, you know, who can lead this initiative. And the people with the loudest voices are the ones talking about, you know, the fact that racism or race yeah racism can only be done by white people and not by black people and that uh, microaggressions are microaggressions are a thing and and, and things like that so it it also comes from particular interpretations of uh policy and to come to their defense some of these policies are kind of ambiguous
0: where did the when, when did the microaggression term come into um the discussion
1: uh, Daryl Tsu, uh, um, if I'm not mistaken, in the 70s, uh, coined the term. Um, don't quote me on that. Um, but it 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 became kind of mainstream, if you will, in the last 10 or 15 years, uh, mainly because of the kairotic moment of you know, people seeing police brutality online through social media, uh, through somebody's camera. Um, camera phone or, or something like that, um, and like other things uh, that w- had the opportunity to come in and really, really occupy people's minds and uh, become one of the talking points of um, contemporary anti-racist activists. Right, this concept of microaggressions. You, you think that was a neutral statement, but it wasn't. You know, and so- sometimes it isn't. But we also aren't psychic you can't tell what's going on in somebody's head and if you're not psychic um, and you uh, appreciate individuality then microaggressions that whole concept falls apart
0: the, and I'm I'm just going to say that you can uh, obviously disagree with it but <clears throat> somebody like you black person who sounds to some people like a conservative and therefore mm-hmm. attracting white conservatives and white conservative money What's your reaction when you hear that and that connection with your website or whatever you're doing and your are writing?
1: Um, it's interesting that people think I sound like a conservative for abiding by the classical liberal values that King wanted to embrace as a black person, Martin Luther King. The issue with um, civil rights and Martin Luther King's uh, way of going about things was that the problem wasn't classical liberal values like uh, individuality, freedom of speech, uh, equality before the law. The problem was that black people weren't allowed to enjoy those things. So he wanted to give access of, for, of, of those things to black people. And um, that's something I think is a worthwhile goal. These days, um, anti-racism means you're demonizing classical liberal values like that. They're part of the problem. They're helping people hide white supremacy. And they do nothing to uplift uh, black people. That's the idea. I, I disagree with that. Um, so if liking individuality and free speech and the primacy of reason and, uh, and uh, you know free markets and things like that makes me conservative, that's very strange because there are white people who agree with that, who aren't being called conservatives. They're still allowed to be liberals.
0: Why, I don't know if you still are, but you became associated with the Cato Uh, Institute what what's that connection and that's a libertarian group
1: yes it is Um, I'm a research fellow for the Cato Institute Um, and a lot of what I do aligns with libertarian uh, values now I have yet to slap that label on um, but I embrace classical liberal values the way Cato tends to Um, I I see it as something that should be uh, the goal uh, for every American citizen um, I think that classical liberalism is social justice if you do it correctly, right? If you allow uh, everybody to have, you know, um, access to, to be equal uh, before the law. If you allow people to uh, exercise their right to free speech and free association and, and and things like that, um, it's just it's it's allowing that for everybody. Um, to me, that is social justice. And um, Cato aligns with that, and that's why I think it's a good fit.
0: What do you think of Barack Obama?
1: I like Barack Obama.
0: What did you think of his presidency?
1: Um, I, you know, I, I I think he was a Democratic president. You know, um, I don't think he did anything incredibly awful. I don't think he did anything incredibly great um I, I do think he i think people who call him a bad president are wrong uh i i no president is perfect um but uh i i was i was fine with his presidency
0: what do you think of his rhetoric
1: um well i did co-edit a book uh with matthew abraham um on the making of barack obama and I contribute, uh, along with co-writing the introduction, I contribute a chapter on his uh, A More Perfect Union speech. Um, So what I pointed out in that speech was, well, Kairos, I mentioned that before. Um, The window of opportunity, the uh, perfect time and place to say something. When the Jeremiah Wright thing happened, um, when he denounced America in church, in a church that Obama attended that was his opportunity to talk about the things he wanted to talk about regarding race. If he did it before that, he would have been harping on racism, quote unquote, right? He would have been, oh, here's the race card again. But once that happened, that gave him the opportunity to say, okay, I have to do this because of that, right? So that was a kairotic moment that he kind of waited for. you know. I don't know if he was trying to wait for it, but uh, that happened for him. And so I write about the, um, the importance of kairos, uh, finding a rhetorical window of opportunity uh, in that speech, so um, I think he's rhetorically savvy in that sense, anyway.
0: What do you think of Al Sharpton and, um, his, uh, and his rhetoric?
1: Um, well, I haven't listened to Al in a while. I, I from what people have told me, he's uh, a little less adamant than he was uh, when I was growing up in the um, in the eighties and nineties. Um, but. Uh, he seemed like then I don't I don't know the person again I don't uh, I'm not really a Sharpton scholar or anything like that, um, but he had a lot of fire behind him and he was doing his best to be a leader for Black America. Now sometimes what he called racist I didn't think was racist, you know. I can't recall any situations right now, but I remember thinking, "Really, man?" You know, um, but I don't know what he's doing lately, so.
0: Do you have children? No. If you did have children, what would you do with raising them compared to the way you were raised? Would there be any difference? And would you talk race with them?
1: Um, well, well, I would raise them similarly in that, uh, you know, an unconditional love. You know, um, if I came home with a C, I wasn't, you know, ostracized, right? Not that I came home with Cs, mind you, um, but. You know, I could do that and not be shamed uh, by my parents. I would do the same uh, with my students. I would um my my students, I don't have kids, so I have to say students. Um, my uh, hypothetical kids. um I would talk about race, um, but I, I talk about it in a way that wasn't divisive um that that um didn't encourage them to uh, hate. Or be suspicious of somebody uh, because of his skin color, right? I, I I wouldn't do that. I would let them know, you know, uh, about the history of this country, um, about the things that have gone on, and and how that may or may not affect the present. Yeah, so I would I would talk to them about these things, but um, I wouldn't do it in the way that uh, we're seeing uh, in in higher education and professional cultures in politics, what have you.
0: What do you see in the rhetoric about police? Um,
1: uh, the rhetoric about police um, is you know understandable given the social truth behind uh, uh, police brutality. and I, what I mean by social truth is that there's this narrative about what's going on and then there's what's going on. there's the numbers. Um, the number of unarmed black people killed by police, um, is under 20, um, with the average under, under 20, not 20,000, um, under 20. Yet, if you ask the typical person is in the thousands, right? Um, now it doesn't mean there's no problem, right? But, uh, the, the, the problem is, is, uh, kind of, um, it's kind of hyperbolic, uh, in, in a sense, um, so I'm not saying there aren't problems with uh, between uh, police and their communities. um, but if we don't look at things accurately, we can't solve them accurately.
0: How has rhetoric about race changed in your lifetime?
1: Uh, yeah, it has definitely changed. Uh, for example, you know um, the idea of you've heard this term uppity Negro, right? that is somebody a a black person who dares to think he's equal to a white person he speaks uh in certain ways he uh has certain values he does a certain job and things like that and he was called uppity um if he has a command of standardized english he was called uppity now today um if somebody has a, a black person has a command of standardized english white and black people are calling him uh you know uh, a white supremacist literally um, they call called this they're, they're saying he has a colonized mind and things like that so you know when a white person calls somebody uppity now other black people stand up and applaud that's the difference uh, between then and now um, the uh, the basis of what we're doing has changed uh, it's gone from we should be included in America to down with America uh, because it's inherently racist, and the rhetoric derives from that.
0: Can't uh, let you go until I ask you about one of the more controversial subjects. You you've talked around it, but not not the exact phrase. Critical race theory and mm-hmm. the teaching of critical race theory in schools is it being done from what you know, and what does it really mean?
1: Um. It's being done in praxis. Uh, So nobody's reading, uh, you know, um, Derek Bell or Kimberly Crenshaw or or anyone like that, Um, but their teachers have. um, And they incorporate that into their pedagogy. Now, I think uh, using the term uh, critical race theory is not 100% accurate. I say critical social justice, because there are certain um, things about original critical race theory that makes sense intersectionality is a thing i'm not just a black person i'm a black male straight you know middle class you know all these things intersect to make up who i am and one would do well to consider those things uh if, if one can so i i understand that idea but it's been demonized now it's turned into the person with the most downtrodden intersections right is the person who's allowed to speak the most the person with the most um "Quote unquote privileged intersections needs to shut up and listen, and um, I I think that's a bastardization of what uh, critical race theory uh, could be. Now, that doesn't mean it's perfect. Um, You know, there there are aspects of it uh, that I think are problematic, but um, there's enough of it. It's it's a nuanced enough thing that I don't like, you know, um, attributing all this, you know, vitriol and and uh and, and drama to that I, I say critical social justice more accurately
0: did you read so. the new york times article uh about the 1619 project and if you did what was your reaction to it
1: um i did read it and um some of the essays were fine and others uh were just not accurate and um you know they were embodied by social truth uh what i mentioned before the uh the uh ideas that derive from a particular narrative about what's going on and not what's really going on um a lot of the uh historical facts were just wrong uh they were flawed and and the people who published that uh knew it was wrong they were told it was wrong by other uh historians um black and white and they didn't listen Um, so uh initially that was clear i think they went back and cleaned some things up uh but but yeah, that is a that is a document that, in a susta- substantial way, abides by the narrative and not the facts.
0: So, what is Eric Smith's goal from here on out? What do you want to accomplish? And tell us how you can, if somebody's interested in free black thought, where do you find it?
1: Um, well, what I'm interested in, I'm interested in you know, combating race essentialism. Uh, The idea that there is a certain authentic way of being black, for example, Uh, I don't believe that. I think there are 40 million black people and there are 40 million different ways to be black. Uh, That's how I I approach that idea. Um, I'm also about uh, keeping uh, critical social justice pedagogy from devolving my field in particular, I think a lot of professors, as I said before, are more geared towards transforming society and less towards educating our students to be happy and successful and have some agency in society. Right. I also don't think everything is about racism. Um, group consciousness basically says race consciousness basically says, uh, you know, every problem my group has is because of that other group, you know, and I, I think that is uh, egregious. Uh, an egregious um, interpretation of what's going on. Uh, so I do wanna combat that. Uh, I also wanna save my field. I said that earlier, but um, I'm uh, working on a project with other scholars um, to have an alternative for rhetorical education. Um, one that does focus on you know, the particular context of Western civilization, but America uh, more specifically. Um, as a pluralistic uh, society of free speech um, and, and a civil society where we can associate as we please. Um, you cannot sell your ideas in the marketplace of ideas if you're not rhetorically savvy. Um, so I, I want to uh, get back to basics when it comes to rhetorical education. So I'm working on a project now to give people that that opportunity um, and uh, to not be mired in, you know, um, critical social justice pedagogy and things like that.
0: So Free Black Thought, where can people go? And if they want to write something for it, how's that? How do you do that?
1: Um, uh, Yes, you can go to uh, www.freeblackthought.com. We also have a Twitter presence. Um, And uh, there is a way to submit uh, to the uh, editors. Um, It's a, you know, FBT uh, uh, email, Right. Um, and uh, the editors there, I, I stepped away from all that stuff uh, because I'm too busy doing other things. The incredible job the editors are doing uh, at Free Black Thought uh, needs to be mentioned. I, I need to shout that out, uh, that they're doing such a great job with this and staying on top of the essays. We get so many essays. you know. Uh, so many people are like, oh, okay, well, th- the other people uh, will never publish this because they feel like they'll get in trouble. You know, uh, this place will publish this. This is an outlet, you know, so. uh, So that's uh, that's something I'm very proud of.
0: Eric Smith, professor of rhetoric at York College, Pennsylvania. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes
1: Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c span.org.